Hey, friends and family and um, everyone in between that might be tuning in for this this podcast. Uh, my name is Matt Moberg. I'm one of the leaders of The Table of Minneapolis, uh, which is the spiritual home of some of my favorite people in the entire world. And I, I, I wanted to take a moment today to, um, to talk on the podcast in, in response to something that people have asked me to talk about for a little while now. Um, I want to talk about, uh, you know, in light of Pride happening this weekend, I, I've often gotten a lot of questions from different people asking how I, as a person who is rooted in the Jesus tradition, came to a position in my life where I fully affirmed the full humanity of my LGBTQIA brothers and sisters and cousins. And as a person who pastors this community and as a person who is pastored by this community, um, I want to be clear that not only do I see this as a fair question to be sent my way, but I actually also think it's a responsible question that I need to faithfully honor as well. And so that's what I intend to do in this podcast and in perhaps another podcast after, because otherwise this thing is going to be hours long. But again, the reason why I want to do this is because, uh, to be completely honest with you, there really hasn't been many weeks that have gone by, genuinely, where I haven't received from somebody uh, the question, in some kind of form, how did you get to where you are without leaving your convictions behind? And while it's true, obviously, that that question can come with a lot of different tones and tudes behind it, some hidden hostility and other kinds of hostility that isn't trying to hide at all, More often than not, that question comes my way from people who are sincerely wide-eyed, curious. They're leaning in. They're trying to understand how a Christian can stand where I am on this matter. And without trying to give you, you know, every inch of my story of what has been a decade-long journey for me, um, I want to answer that question, at least give you a glimpse into the answer to that question in hopes that it'll be helpful for some and maybe even healing for others. Before I do, however, let me briefly put out there just a quick disclaimer as to where it is that I'm, that I'm coming from. Um, I'm not interested in picking any fights with anybody. And I hope I've made that clear in these different online engagements that have gotten real weird real quick. Um, I'm just not interested in picking fights. I, I don't think that quick jabs dignify the depths of this conversation, nor do I think that, to be honest, I don't think God honors it. I don't think that God's rooting on verbal violence um, in that way. I don't think that um, on-purpose controversial is something that God slaps an endorsement on either. I just don't see that in our story. So, so my intentions for this space, they aren't to show how others have been misguided. I simply want to show how I personally have been guided. And I actually think that's important to note, uh, you know, as we get into this, because thinking about these fights and thinking about how ugly things can often get when we talk about this very sensitive and complicated matter, At the heart of many ugly Facebook fights about this uh, conversation, what it often seems to be about is that what one side values the most, they sense that the other side doesn't value at all. For conservatives or traditionalists, they value the truth, and they often wish that progressives did too. For progressives, they value empathy, and they wish conservatives would as well. Neither side is as simplistic as the stereotypes are that we build in our minds. I know it's convenient to hold opposing views and those who hold them in that light in simplistic terms like that, but that's just not reality. And so again, I'm not out here today trying to show how this person or that person or this person, how they've all been misguided. I simply want to let you in on how I personally have been guided. And for me, 
Um, it's a personal story. Um, I'll date it back seven years ago, roughly, give or take. Eh, I think it was seven years ago. About seven years ago, I was getting off of a plane from L.A., and I had landed, and my wife was picking me up at the airport. And after, obviously, that long romantic embrace that we had, don't make it weird, Matt, she told me that we were going to go over to my parents' house because my brother Ben wanted to talk to us about something. And I can't tell you how, I don't know how, but I knew at that point, I knew what he wanted to say long before we ever got a chance to say it. In fact, this is going to sound strange to many because it sounds strange to me, but three weeks prior to that night when we were going over to my parents' house, we were at my parents' house, and I was sitting down on the couch next to Lauren, and we were watching TV when all of a sudden, unprovoked, no reason behind it, I just had this fleeting thought that was substantial enough that I said it out loud. I turned to my wife and I said, you know, I think, I think Ben is gay. I just I have no grounds for that belief. He's never said anything to me about it, but I, I, I just think he's gay. It's just a thought that came across my mind, and it felt substantial enough to say it out loud, and so I did. And then that night, three weeks later, um, when we were at my parents' house, Ben said that. He put it out there. Um, with our family all around, Ben sat us down and threw tears and shaky hands and fear and a heaviness and anxiety. He talked to us about how he has known that he was gay for a long time now. How he remembers sitting in church and hearing the preacher preach about how much God hated him. And he talked to us about all of the nights that he had been laying in his own bed, listening to how much he had started to hate himself. And he talked to us about how nights before this night together, he had been walking around uptown, drinking, and thinking about throwing his body in front of a bus and just putting an end to all the pain that was coming from all that hatred. But by the grace of God, um, he didn't do it. He chose to instead put an end to his silence. He chose to not be a corpse in the closet. And side note, this is why Ben is and will always be the bravest person I know, because you need to understand that he wasn't opening himself up to like some progressive uh, family. He was opening himself up to a Christian Jesus following people who had a high view of the scripture, who still do have a high view of the scripture, and who have always seen this thing in black and white terms, seen it as wrong. Um, and so for Ben, he didn't know what this would mean. He didn't know what the implications would mean for him in a place like that. And those hours for our family, looking back now, uh, those are some of the hardest and the holiest hours that we've ever held as a family together. And it's also one of the proudest moments that I'll ever have in my family because my people didn't flinch. One by one, uh, we all moved in on Ben and we held him and we loved him in that moment. And We let him know that this doesn't change anything about how we feel about him. It doesn't change anything about what he means to us. It doesn't change anything about his role in this family. We love him. Instead of any kind of cold condemnation, as I know from sitting with many of my LGBT friends, I know that they've faced. I know it's more common than not. Um, Our family, we moved in with tears and with hugs and with more tears and with awkward jokes. And it was family and it was messy, but it was really good. Now, with all that said, uh, that doesn't mean that 
the, by the time we got up the next morning, we all went out and put rainbow flags on our home. That doesn't mean that um, uh, doesn't mean that we were immediately this affirming crew that were, became advocates of the LGBT community. Uh, I can speak only personally for me. I, I wasn't anywhere near that. I was um, I was in pain. I was distraught. I love my brother, and and so I was angry that God would do this to my brother. And I didn't know that there was any other way that I could feel about the matter but be angry and mourn. Because, again, for me, this was a black and white issue. It just was. It, it didn't feel complex. I never heard it presented in a complex way. I didn't know there was another way of thinking about this. And so it was very clear, and so I was very sad. And I was convinced that the only way that Ben could still be faithful to God was to be a celibate gay man for the rest of his life. And so there was a lot of mourning in there for me at the beginning, um, I mourned for uh, seasons of loneliness that would be coming upon him. I mourned that he'd never get to find somebody like Lauren. I mourned that he'd never get to have what I have. And In fact, I remember one afternoon in particular driving down Snelling Avenue at some point in the weeks after Ben came out, and I was stopped at a stoplight, and out of nowhere I just started weeping. And so... Um, I tell you that because in the midst of that pain, in the midst of that sadness, in the midst of the confusion, um, I tried to do something about it that I still have shame and regret around. Um, I remembered in that time that I knew somebody who had worked with men and issues of sexuality, and I called him up and I asked him through tears on my side of the phone if he could help my brother out, um, not knowing at that time that I was asking this man to essentially do reparative therapy on my younger brother. And uh, he said yes, and Ben went, and um, I really wish I hadn't done that. But that's what I did when I was in that place, and I was in, I put Ben in that predicament. And I did it again because it just felt non-negotiable, like the ultimate end for Ben, if he was going to stay Christian, was for him to stay celibate. And again, I know that's extreme. Uh, I can hear that now. Uh, I know it's crass. I know it's cold. I know it's ugly. But that was my truth. That's that's where I was eight years ago. Eight years ago, as somebody who had just gotten my bachelor's degree in biblical and theological studies, this issue this issue was not controversial. It was clear. But after Ben came out, and after many, many more seasons, it it gradually became less clear. After spending the next few years in the presence of others who had come out, in the presence of families whose loved ones had come out, after reading voices like James Brownson and Matthew Vines and David Gushy, and after getting uh, my master's in theology and going through seminary where I, I intentionally tried to learn how to listen to where the Spirit is speaking in my life, I have moved from trying to get my brother fixed to realizing that I was the one that was broken. To realizing that I was the one who had built up this image of God in my mind that uh, was a God that only celebrated a few, despite the scriptural story that said otherwise. I had built up this image of God in my mind that looked nothing like the one who loved the lepers, who claimed and embodied allegiance and solidarity with the least of these. Now, obviously, that's only the Cliff Notes, um, thousand mile high overview of of. Uh, that journey, what that process has looked like for me. But I want to start there because I know uh, oftentimes when I share my journey, and I even go more in depth, the, the most common response sounds something like this. Matt, 
thank you for sharing that. Um, grateful that you'd share that. And of course, it makes sense that you are affirming. It makes all the sense in the world because you have a brother that you love is gay. You have been naturally inclined and incentivized to fully endorse who he is. We get it. And I don't think they, that people say that to me with intentional condescension in their tone. And yet it's there. And oftentimes when they say that, I would say, uh, yeah, that's true. I, I, do, I am naturally inclined and incentivized to see this through the lens of loving somebody who is gay. But the same should also be true for you. Because if I'm talking to a Christian um, in that conversation, biblically speaking, Ben is no more my brother than he is your brother. And if you are not arriving at any interpretation without some level of skin in the game, without some level of investment in the game, heart full of actual love for an individual person and not just abstract people, then your interpretation really has no backbone. It's built all on words that have failed to ever become flesh. Secondly, I would also argue that while people might be suspect of my affirming position because I have allowed my love for my gay brother to factor into my moral discernment, I would submit to you that you've done the same thing. Maybe not particularly for Ben. Uh, Maybe it's not a specific love for Ben that's made you change your views. But my point being is this, is that if we take just a brief study of church history, we would see, it would be shown that even among conservatives in this conversation on sexuality, the fact that they have a position at all on the LGBTQIA faithful monogamous marriages is a departure from where the church once stood. There has been movement away from the traditional take on the church, even among those who claim to have a traditional take on this conversation. And so what I would like to do is just look at the last 60 years of church history in particular and, and talk about what I mean when I say that there has been movement inside of the church. If you go back 60 years ago, um, those who were born with the same-sex attraction, they were also born into a society of complete suppression. The church had no position on faithful, monogamous, LGBT marriages because the church didn't even know that these peoples were really existing. It was buried and it was hidden. It was out of sight and thus out of our bylaws and out of pulpits as well. It really wasn't until people from the same-sex community started to come out of the darkness and out of their closets and into the light of liberation and showing up in more public places with faithful lovers by their side. It wasn't until then that the church had to, well, and everybody else, had to recognize that 5 to 10% of society did not subscribe to heterosexuality. And when the church saw this, they decided they had to say something about it. And what feels to me like a knee-jerk reaction, their first response was to reach for texts like Leviticus and call our LGBT brothers and sisters and cousins an abomination. They called them abhorrent. They called them strange. Um, this 5 to 10% of society, whatever the numbers might exactly be, it's a little ambiguous, but the, the church said it grosses people out. As if you being grossed out gives you grounds to kicking people out. Can I side note this really quick? Something that's important. I had a conversation last week where somebody was, um, we had gone through the theology, we had done some exegetical work on texts, and they said, you know, but what about just like the natural ick factor? And I, um, hard to dignify that position, but I, I tried to enter into it. And I asked him a question that I had heard somebody else ask in the past. They said, 
I said to them, I said, can you just imagine uh, your grandparents having sex? Picture that for a moment. Do you like what you see? When they, obviously when they said no, I followed it up with, okay, that's great, but is that bad that they were getting jiggy with it? And inevitably they, they said no. Back to church history. Five to ten percent of the population comes out and introduces themselves to the rest of the population. And in the 1970s, after our country started to hear really the first major call for social equality among gays and lesbians, um, the church in response tried to scream louder. With homophobic leaders like Anita Bryant and the Falwell family, opposition to this new push for equality was immediately demonized and denounced and... um, it was, it was pushed back even harder by the church. The church's fierce repulsion of the LGBTQIA community, that led all the way up until the 80s, at which point the horror of the AIDS crisis hit. Now, when the AIDS crisis hit and, hit, um, and took hundreds of thousands of lives uh, from us, uh, I think I can speak for all of us, and I would say that our hope would be that it is at that point, in the midst of the tragedy, that the soft hands of the church would reach out to the wounded and be agents of healing and reparation in the world, that they would take on this work. That's not what happened. Instead, much of the evangelical church wasted no time in reaching for Romans 1 and claiming that prophecy had been fulfilled in front of our eyes, that people were dying every day because uh, what Paul said is actually coming true. We reached for Romans 1 and we read, Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. That was, that was our take on the tragedy. That this is um, our reactive response to one of the greatest wounds our country has ever bared was that God had ordained this. Over time, as the AIDS crisis got worse and worse, that validation that position got weaker and weaker because we discovered in the AIDS crisis that the epidemic wasn't only claiming the lives of those who were participating in same-sex activity, but it was also impacting heterosexual people as well. And not just people who were doing drugs or getting into trouble, but people who were getting blood transfusions and other basic morally neutral things. And as time passed and as pastors' sons and friends and family members um, were being taken from them by this disease, people started to become humanized. It was no longer this abstract group of people that existed on the margins of society. It was people that we shared tables with that were dying. And the church, as they started to know the names of those that were being taken from them, They changed their position from this violent rhetoric that was screaming at the dead and dying all around them and was instead reaching out to a lot of people. Um, They stopped casting out indictments on people that they didn't know, and they cast out invitations to try and get to know them. And in doing so, in many ways, the AIDS crisis led the church kicking and screaming into a place where it started to say hello and introduce itself to people that it previously had no interest in knowing. Churches moved from this position of uh, those people right there are cursed, they're damned, they are getting this disease because it's a God-ordained reality. They moved to this place of everybody is welcomed at our church. Everybody belongs at our church. 
And by the time you get to the 1990s, most churches, and even traditional churches, they began to take on this new approach that had an orientation of welcoming and hospitality, trying to reclaim its roots in the story of Jesus' own open table. We stop talking about people as abominations, and when you stop treating people like a problem and choose to treat them instead like a person, they seem to respond better. It's crazy, I know. But change started to happen. And we see that now, you know, from Pew Research and other people who have done studies. A study, for example, that says in 1993, 22% of Americans had a close friend or family member that was gay or lesbian. But in 2013, that number has now jumped to 65%. What happened with this new open door uh, approach, uh, people from the LGBT community started to come into these churches, and many were already, who were already there were starting to come out in these churches. And the proximity between the church and the LGBT community, it had a profound effect. Sharing space on Sundays had a profound effect. Holding hands during prayer, knowing the names of one another's kids, it softened the church and led the church to say, not only can you come in and mix it up with us, you could even be involved if you'd like. You can pass out brochures, you can change the coffee, you can help with stage setup, you can run the sound, you know, the real glamorous jobs. The church started to say, like, cute and clever slogan and saying things like, um, love the sinner but hate the sin, and we're all broke, and we all are sinners. And for many heterosexuals, when we first laid our ears upon these things, they sounded right, or at least right enough. But over time, as we kept on saying these things, we noticed that when we were saying them, we would look down the pew at the other end of the aisle where that gay couple was standing. They were cringing when the sounds came out. We noticed how they didn't say those things with us. For them, they were holding the hands of their partners, their peace, their sacred gift from God, the most important part of their lives. And they would respond internally, often not safe enough to do it externally. And they would say, you know, you're right. We all are broken. We all do have our baggage. We got our issues. We all have our sin. But this isn't that. The love of my life and what I share with this partner of mine It's not the sin that you keep talking about. And for the first time, I would submit to you, the church had to deal with the question no longer of, um, is our, is our church open and welcoming to this people? But is this, is our church going to actually affirm, um, that God is actually in and for and with and blessing a covenantal union that is faithful and honoring between two people of the same sex? But here's my point in telling you that brief church history that brings us to this present moment is because the question is not whether or not we allow flesh and blood experiences to impact our moral discernment. They do, and they will continue to do so. The question instead is whether or not, as Christian people, our sacred text signs off on that being okay. In my journey, in my experience, in my story, I've landed conclusively in saying, yes, it is. And I've done so by looking at the pages of the text. See, a lot of people, they feel like they need to go outside of the story of Jesus, outside of the scripture to land in this progressive and affirming place. That's not who I am. That's not where I stand. I have come to where I am through the text, through the story of Jesus, and through the spirit that is introduced to me in it. 
I can look at stories like Peter's conversion of the Gentiles and the story of Acts to see how flesh and blood experiences have factored into moral discernment. You could look at Jesus' breaking of the Sabbath law to save people's lives. You could look at how Jesus says in his seminal sermon on the Mount that uh, you have heard it said, but I say to you, which is not an indictment on the text that we hold and have heard, but an indictment on the way that we hear it. So there is possibility that you can hold a text and hear it wrong because we have not experienced it properly. We could go there and we could look at these texts and we could go other places and beyond. Personally, for me, what I want to share with you in, in this is long, I know, but I think it's important. Um, the story in scripture that has been the most formative place for me to go to has been in Luke 24, and it's the post-Easter story of Emmaus. Think about that story, for those of you familiar. For those of you who aren't, crack open your Bible, Luke 24, bada bing, bada boom. Think about the post-Easter story, the post-Easter road to Emmaus, and the two broken-hearted boys that walked upon it. You'll remember how they were distraught, and they were heavy in despair after watching uh, their leader lynched in Jim Crow, Jerusalem. And they are now leaving the city in their wake and heading back home, trying to do what they can to put together put back together the pieces of their shattered lives. And in that place, as they take those heavy steps into their own uncertainty, Jesus shows up. The resurrected Christ shows up next to them, and he starts talking with them about what's going on. And they don't know that it's him that's doing the talking, uh, and he doesn't introduce himself to them to clear up the confusion. All he asks them is the question that I think he asks all of us every day of our lives. Jesus says, What are you talking about as you walk along the way? As a sermonic uh, side note of sorts, I want you to know that I personally find great joy and great comfort and great healing and knowing that God cares about what we care about as we walk along the way. God cares about what you care about as you walk along the way. Jesus cared about what these boys were caring about as they walked along the way. And Jesus asks them this question, and then he makes space for their sadness to come out. He, he lets them grieve. He lets them express their anger and torment. And then they, uh, it's kind of funny now, but they start talking to Jesus about the absence of Jesus, not knowing that it was Jesus that they're talking to. And you would think, if I'm Jesus, I'm not. But if you were Jesus, you would be thinking, how tempting would it be to just put these troubled minds at ease and say, hello, it's me. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't uh, dance the jig. He doesn't de-robe and show off his resurrected body. He doesn't make them stick his fingers in his side. He remains a stranger as they walk along that road. He maintains his own anonymity. And he takes them instead back to the scripture. He takes them instead back to the same scripture that they have been raised in and known for their entire lives. Please don't miss this. In our very beginning... At the center of our story, in the first interaction that the resurrected Christ has with humanity, that interaction is of Jesus walking along the road with faithful, devoted followers of Christ who loved deeply and gave their lives to this man. People who have known the biblical sacred text their entire lives, but also people who have missed what the text was telling them. It is possible to know your Bible inside and out and miss what your Bible is bringing you into. This isn't unlike the moment when Jesus calls the Pharisees and he looked into their eyes with confusion and frustration and yet grace and he says to them, 
I don't understand. You search the scriptures for in these you think that you found eternal life. But eyes up. These are they which testify of me, and you have yet to actually know me. You have studied the map. You've, you've stared at these directions for so long, but you've forgotten where you were trying to go. You've tried to spell out the science of people falling in love. You've obsessed over what happens scientifically when we kiss, but you've forgotten what it's like to actually be kissed. You see, this is why, you know, when I have people come at me, and be it online or elsewhere, and they say, how dare you, Matt? How dare you? The audacity. How could you possibly change your beliefs on Scripture after thousands of years of tradition and dogma and creeds? And I I tell them that not only is it consistent with our story to do that, I actually have the responsibility to always stay open to the possibility that I might have to do that. Because I could know a text my entire life And not hear all that that text has to say. And here's what I love about this story in Luke 24. As they walk down this road together, as they hold each other's hearts every step along the way, Jesus connects all the dots, starting with the law and moving through the prophets. And yet still, even after doing so, they still don't know that it's Jesus that is doing the talking. It isn't actually until they reach Emmaus. It isn't until they sit down for dinner. It isn't until Jesus breaks the bread that the text reads saying that their eyes were opened and then at that place in time, they recognized him. They have been on a journey with Jesus. They have walked intimately next to his side. They've had conversations with him, but their eyes were closed the entire time. For so much of my life, when thinking specifically about this conversation, I have walked with Jesus. I have talked with Jesus. I have explored sacred text with Jesus, and yet my eyes were closed. But in some of the most critical moments of my life, it was at that dinner table where my eyes started to open up. It was in the flesh and blood encounters. It was in smelling each other's breaths and holding each other's tears. It was in those critical, honest, exposed moments of truth, of life, of wounds, of passion and pain, where I've experienced what it's like to have your eyes start to crack open. For these boys, this is what I want you to see. It wasn't the text that opened their eyes. It was the way that Jesus broke the bread at dinner. As a people who are trying to be faithful to the word that became flesh, it's very important that we live incarnationally. It's very important that we pay mind to what happens at dinner. Because it's at dinner where our eyes crack open. It wasn't Jesus' personal Bible study that he did with them on the road that all of a sudden made them see it was the way that he broke the bread. In our Christian story, Change happens like this. Be it micro or macro, your soul or your system, this is how change happens. Not once in our Christian history have we seen dogma or doctrine or theology or ideologies ever change, ever be reformed because somebody tucked far away in a seminary school in the ivory towers of academia removed from other people suddenly come to see a text in a different light and then send word to everybody else telling them to do the exact same thing. That's just not how change has happened. It's not how change happens. 
Change doesn't happen over our own personal, isolated dissection of a text. Change happens over dinner. It is always through our real-life flesh-and-blood experiences that we throw back onto the text and we ask, have we been reading this thing right? Have we really understood all that is being said here? On this issue of inclusion and exclusion, whether we are talking about um, the original inclusion-exclusion challenge that the church faced with the Gentiles. Can you imagine that, side note? The, we, we right now are having these massive conversations inside of the church asking, what, what is our stance? Do we affirm the full humanity, the full inclusion of 5 to 10% of society? The original church was asking the same question, but about 98% of the world. And when that original challenge was posed, and when they tried to come to an answer... What changed from them was not a different reading of the text. It was in having dinner in a Gentile's home. It wasn't until Peter in Acts 10 through 15 goes from calling the people an abomination to learning their names, to sitting next to them, to coming out and saying in the same way that the Spirit fell on us at Pentecost. I don't know, you guys. The Spirit seems to have fallen on these people as well. This is incarnational theology. This is how it's supposed to work. Fidelity to God is following the word that became flesh. And throughout history, we have been led into more and more truth as we've been more and more faithful to the stories that are in the flesh. Whether we are talking about women's rights, the legitimacy of slavery, dietary restrictions, interracial, I could go on and on. At every point of progress, all of our words came to a crossroads with the flesh, and the flesh ended up pulling us forward. Now, people might get anxious in me saying this, and because I've heard that anxiety before, they say, well, okay, Matt, defensive things come up, and they say, do you not believe in the authority of Scripture? And I tell them, I say, I absolutely do. I absolutely believe in the authority of Scripture. What I don't believe in is the authority of your reading of Scripture. And I certainly have questions about my own. And with that humility and that openness, I will continue to listen to my life as it encounters the lives of others around me. And I take my life back to the text with open hands and an open heart. And I ask, is this where Christ is leading us next? Am I being led deeper into the freedom of love or am I being locked up in fear's house of the law? Incarnational theology, listening to our lives. This is what pulls us forward. And let me just end with an example of how that's worked in a way that I think we all collectively would agree. Wait a second, that's true. Think about it, if you will, um, the matters of divorce and, and how this factors into it. For centuries, everybody has known that a plain reading of Scripture clearly shows that divorce isn't an option on the table for Christians. Except perhaps uh, in case of adultery, according to Matthew 19 and Mark 10. If evidence of adultery, though, is the only biblical grounds that somebody can be divorced upon, to my conservative, self-proclaimed, biblical purists, uh, my question is this. Do you believe that physical abuse is sufficient grounds for divorce? If somebody is getting beat on, are they allowed, in your eyes, biblically speaking, to be divorced? If you say that they are allowed, then... I guess I would just kindly ask that you show me your texts that tell you that this is acceptable because you won't be able to do it. And it's not because the Bible is silent on the matter. It actually has something, unfortunately, to say. First Peter actually says 
First uh, Peter three, that there is there's counsel in that context that says that wives ought to stay married, even if it means that they have to be beaten in doing so, even if it means that they have to keep collecting the bruises. And so, if biblical fidelity is prioritized above all else for you, why would you not send abused spouses back into their abusive marriages? Could it have something to do with the fact that you cannot bear? the sight of seeing kids walking into kids' rooms on Sundays with a limp in their step? Could it have something to do with the fact that you can't stand seeing wives coming into dark rooms with sunglasses on? Could the reason why you wouldn't send the abused back to their abuser have something to do with the fact that you have seen verifiable and very real suffering of abused people and it factored into your moral discernment on how you are coming to understand divorce? And if that's the case... Why do you see our LGBT abused family members all around us and you insist on sending them back to their abuser? Why has their pain not factored into your moral discernment there? Why has the Spirit not spoken through their wounds to pull you forward? See, for me, um, I cannot participate in that kind of violence when I've heard God calling me forward. That's a stand that I take not out of convenience, but out of conviction that this is what love looks like. This is the first podcast I want to do on this conversation. It is a conversation that obviously is complex. It has depths, and I want to dignify that. In this first telling of how I arrived where I am, I'm obviously not exegeting any of the so-called clobber passages, any of the scripture that I've had to to wrestle with to arrive where I am. I will do that. Uh, I'll do another podcast to do so, but I want to make this digestible and keep it short. And I wanted to start with this place of asking whoever might be adversarial or opposed to what it is that I'm saying that you would be open to the conversation, that you would come to see that this is how movement happens. This is how God has pulled us forward, forward since the beginning of the church and how I believe God continues to do so. You are loved, friends. Um, We'll talk soon.